Chapter 10, Part 1 of American Men of Mind by Burton Egbert Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. American Men of Mind by Burton Egbert Stevenson. Chapter 10, Inventors, Part 1. It is a curious fact that the men to whom the world owes most generally get the least reward. The genius in art or letters is seldom recognized as such until long after he himself has passed away. His life is usually embittered by derision or neglect. But in the history of civilization, the lot of no man has been harder or more thankless than that of the inventor. Poverty and want have always been his portion, and even after he had won his triumph, had compelled public recognition of some great invention, it was usually someone else who won the reward. America has been especially strong in the field of invention. Indeed, practically all the great labor-saving devices of the past century and more have originated here. Yankee ingenuity has passed into a proverb, and a true one, for the country which has produced the steamboat, the cotton gin, the sewing machine, the electric telegraph, the phonograph, the telephone, the typewriter, the reaper, and binder, to mention only a few of the achievements of American inventors, may surely claim first place in this respect among the nations of the world there are few stories more inspiring than that of american invention and as benefactors to their race the long line of american inventors may rightly rank before even the great philanthropists whose careers are outlined elsewhere in this volume indeed if we judge greatness by the benefits which a man confers upon mankind such men as whitney and howe and morse and bell and edison far surpass most of the great characters of history first of the line is benjamin franklin whose many-sided genius gives him a unique place in american history his career has been considered in the chapter dealing with our statesmen but let us pause for a moment here to speak of his inventions one of them the franklin stove is still in use in hundreds of old houses and as an economizer of fuel has never been surpassed another was the lightning rod he introduced the basket willow the watertight compartment for ships, the culture of silk, the use of white clothing in hot weather, and the use of oil to quiet a tempest-tossed sea. From none of his inventions did he seek to get any return. The governor of Pennsylvania offered to give him a monopoly of the sale of the Franklin stove for a period of years, but he declined it, saying, that as we enjoy great advantages from the inventions of others, we should be glad to serve others by any invention of ours a principal characteristic of franklin's whole philosophy of life after franklin came robert fulton the first man successfully to apply the power of the steam engine to the propulsion of boats everyone has heard the story of how years before the youthful james watt first got his idea of the power of steam by noticing how it rattled the lid on his mother's boiling tea-kettle from that came the stationary engine and from that the engine as applied to the locomotive it remained for fulton to apply it to water navigation born in lancaster county pennsylvania of irish parents in poor circumstances the boy received only the rudiments of an education but developed a surprising talent for painting so that when he was seventeen he removed to philadelphia and set up there as an artist painting portraits and landscapes he remained there for some years and finally 
having made enough money to purchase a small farm for his mother, sailed for London, where he introduced himself to that amiable patron of all American painters, Benjamin West. West, who was at that time at the height of his fame, received Fulton with great kindness, and made a place in his house for him, where he remained for several years. Those years were not devoted exclusively to painting, for Fulton had developed an interest in mechanics, secured a patent for an improvement in canal locks, invented a plunging boat, a kind of submarine, a machine for spinning flax, one for making ropes, one for sawing marble, and many others of minor importance. Finally, abandoning art altogether, he went to Paris, where he spent seven years with the family of Joel Barlow, conducting with him a number of experiments, one series of which was developed into the modern submarine torpedo. He succeeded in interesting the French government in his submarine experiments, and constructed a boat equipped with a small engine, with which, in the harbor of Brest, he seems actually to have made some progress under water remaining under on one occasion for more than four hours but the french government finally withdrew its support and finding the british government also indifferent fulton sailed for new york in december eighteen o six here he succeeded in interesting the united states government which granted him five thousand dollars to continue his submarine experiments but interest in them soon waned and fulton turned his whole attention to the subject of steam navigation he had been experimenting in this direction for a number of years, and, in conjunction with Chancellor Livingston of New Jersey, had secured from the legislature of New York the exclusive right and privilege of navigating all kinds of boats which might be propelled by the force of fire or steam on all the waters within the territory of New York for a period of twenty years provided he would by the end of eighteen o seven produce a boat that would attain a speed of four miles an hour fulton went to work at once the experiments being paid for by livingston and after various calculations discarded the use of paddles or oars of duck's feet which open as they are pushed out and close as they are drawn in and also the idea of forcing water out of the stern of the vessel he finally decided on the paddle wheel and in august eighteen o seven the first american steamboat appeared on the east river a great concourse witnessed the first trial, incredulous at first, but converted into enthusiastic believers after the boat had gone a quarter of a mile. She was christened the Claremont, and soon afterwards made a trip up the Hudson to Albany, to the astonishment of the people living along the banks of that mighty river. The distance of 150 miles against the current of the river was covered in 32 hours, and there could no longer be any question of Fulton's success. A regular schedule between Albany and New York was established, and the Claremont began that great river traffic now carried on by the most palatial river steamers in the world. After that, it was merely a question of development. More boats were built, improvements were made, and every year witnessed an increase of speed and efficiency. In 1814, in the midst of the Second War with England, Fulton built the first steamship of war the world had ever seen, designed for the defense of New York Harbor this ancestor of the modern dreadnought was named fulton the first in honor of her designer she indirectly caused his death for exposing himself for several hours of a bitter winter day in supervising some changes on her he developed pneumonia and died a few days later 
could he revisit the world today and see the wonderful and mighty ships which have grown out of his idea he would no doubt be as astonished as were the people along the hudson on that fall day in eighteen o seven when they saw the claremont making her way up the stream against wind and tide the same year that robert fulton was born another inventive genius first saw the light in the little town of westboro massachusetts his name was eli whitney and the work he was to do revolutionized the industrial development of the south paid off its debts and troubled the value of its lands it did something else too which was to fasten upon the south the system of negro slavery resulting in the civil war but though he added hundreds of millions of dollars to the wealth of his country his own reward was neglect indifference countless lawsuits and endless vexation of body and spirit whitney's father ran a little woodworking shop where he made wheels and chairs and there the boy spent every possible hour at the age of twelve he made himself a violin and his progress was so steady that by the time he was sixteen he had greatly enlarged the business and had gained the reputation of being the best mechanic in all the country round he soon discovered the value of education and managed to prepare himself for yale college which he entered in seventeen eighty nine at the age of twenty four an age at which most men had long since graduated and settled in life but when he persevered graduating in seventeen ninety two and almost immediately securing a position as private tutor in a georgia family which was to change the whole course of his life until he reached the south he had never seen raw cotton only a little of which indeed had been raised in the united states it had not been profitable because of the difficulty of picking out the green cotton seed to separate one pound of the staple from the seed was a day's work so that cotton was considered rather as a curiosity than as a profitable crop whitney was impressed by the possibilities of cotton culture could this obstacle be overcome and devoted his spare time to the construction of the machine upon which his fame rests at last it was done and did its work so perfectly that there could be no question of its success experiments showed that with it one man with the aid of two horsepower could clean five thousand pounds of cotton a day a patent was at once applied for and every effort made to keep the invention a secret until a patent had been secured but knowledge of it swept through the state and great crowds of people came to see the machine whitney refused to show it and after much excitement a mob one night broke into the building where it was and carried it away others were at once made using it as a model and by the time whitney had secured his patent they were in successful operation in many parts of the state that was the beginning of whitney's trials he had not enough money to produce machines rapidly enough to meet the tremendous demand for them and various rivals sprang up some of them even claiming the honor of the invention other gins were put on the market differing from whitney's only in some unimportant detail and plainly an infringement of his patent but he had not the means to prosecute their manufacturers the result was that after two years of disheartening struggle whitney was reduced to bankruptcy the attitude of the south toward him caused him especial distress i have invented a machine he wrote from which the citizens of the South have already realized immense profits, which is worth to them millions, and from which they must continue to derive the most important profits, and in return to be treated as a felon, a swindler, and a villain, has stung me to the very soul. 
and when i consider that this cruel persecution is inflicted by the very persons who are enjoying these great benefits and expressly for the purpose of preventing my ever deriving the least advantage from my labors the acuteness of my feelings is altogether inexpressible finally the states of north and south carolina voted him a royalty upon all the machines in use and this enabled him to pay his debts but whitney at last abandoned hope of ever receiving from his invention the returns he had hoped for and turning his attention to other business received in seventeen ninety eight a contract from the united states government for ten thousand stand of arms eight years were consumed in filling this contract a contract for thirty thousand stand followed and so many improvements in design and process of manufacture were made by whitney that no other manufacturer could compete with him the result of all this was that whitney was enabled to end his life in comparative independence his last days were his happiest and he found in the care and affection of a loving family some consolation for the injustice and ingratitude which he had suffered sixteen years after the battle of bunker hill a boy was born in a great frame house at the foot of breed's hill upon which that famous and misnamed battle was really fought the boy's father was a preacher named Jedediah Morse, and the boy was named Samuel Finley, after his maternal great-grandfather, the renowned president of Princeton College, and Breeze, after his mother's maiden name, so that he comes down through history as S.F.B. Morse. He received a thorough schooling, graduating from Yale in 1807, and at once turned his attention to art we have already spoken of his achievements in that respect which were really of the first importance he was an artist heart and soul but the whole course of his life was to be changed in a remarkable fashion in the autumn of eighteen thirty two morse being at that time forty-one years of age sailed from harve for new york in the ship sully it happened that there were on board some scientists who had been interested in electrical development and the talk one evening turned on electricity morse knew little about it except what he had learned in a few lectures heard at yale but when somebody asked how long it took a current of electricity to pass through a wire and when the answer was that the passage was instantaneous his interest was aroused if that is the case he said and if the passage of the current can be made visible or audible there is no reason why intelligence cannot be transmitted instantaneously by electricity the company broke up after a while, but Morse, filled with his great idea, went on deck, and at the end of an hour had jotted down in his notebook the first skeleton of the Morse alphabet. Before he reached New York, he had made drawings and specifications of his invention, which he seems to have grasped clearly and completely from the first, although its details were worked out only by laborious thought. It was necessary for him to earn a living, and not until three years later was the first rude instrument completed. Two years more, and he had a short line in operation, but it was looked upon as a scientific toy constructed by an unfortunate dreamer. Finally, in 1838, Morse appeared before Congress, exhibited his invention, and asked aid to construct an experimental line between Washington and Baltimore. He was laughed at, and for twelve years an extraordinary struggle ensued, Morse laboring to convince the world of the value of his invention, and the world scoffing at him. His own situation was forlorn in the extreme, for his painting was his only means of livelihood, and absorbed as he was by his great invention, he found painting utterly impossible. 
His home was a single room in the fifth story of a building at the corner of Nassau and Beekman Streets in New York City, a room which served as studio, workshop, parlor, kitchen, and bedroom. There he labored and slept, using such money as he could earn for his experiments and almost starving himself in consequence. But at last the tide turned. He was appointed to a position at the University of the City of New York, which provided him with better means for experiment, and in 1843 again appeared before Congress. This time he found some backers, and by a close vote at the last hour of the session, an appropriation of $30,000 was made to enable him to construct a line between Washington and Baltimore. Wild with delight and enthusiasm, the inventor went to work, and on the 24th day of May, 1844, the first message flashed over the wire, What hath God wrought? The wonder and amazement of the public can be better imagined than described. Morse offered to sell his invention to the government for the sum of $100,000, but the postmaster general, a thick-headed individual named Cave Johnson, refused the offer, stating that, in his opinion, no line would ever pay for the cost of operation. It was inevitable that rival claimants for the honor of the invention should crop up on every side, but after years of bitter litigation, Moore succeeded in defending his title, and honors began to pour in upon him. It is worth remarking that the Sultan of Turkey, supposedly the most benighted of all rulers, was the first monarch to acknowledge Morse as a public benefactor. That was in 1848. But the monarchs of Europe soon followed, and in 1858 a special congress was called by the Emperor of the French to devise some suitable testimonial to the great inventor. But perhaps the most fitting testimonial of all were the ceremonies at the unveiling of the Morse Monument in New York City in 1871. Delegates were present from every state in the Union, and at the close of the reception, William Orton, president of the Western Union Telegraph Company, announced that the telegraph instrument before the audience was in connection with every other one of the 10,000 instruments in America, and that beside every instrument an operator was waiting to receive a message. Then a young operator sent this message from the key. Greetings and thanks to the telegraph fraternity throughout the world. Glory to God in the highest on earth. Peace, goodwill to men. Then the venerable inventor, the personification of dignity, simplicity, and kindliness, bent over the key and sent out S.F.B. Morse. A storm of enthusiasm swept over the audience, and the scene will never be forgotten by any who took part in it. The proudest boast of many an old operator is that he received that message. Death came to the inventor a year later, and on the day of his funeral, every telegraph office throughout the land was draped in mourning. Although to Morse belongs all the credits for the invention of the telegraph, it should, in justice to one man, be pointed out that it would have been impossible but for a discovery which preceded it, that of the electromagnet. To Joseph Henry, the great physicist, first of Princeton, then of the Smithsonian Institution, this invention is chiefly due. We have already spoken of Professor Henry's work in science, but none of it was more important than his invention, in 1828, of the modern form of electromagnet, a coil of silk-covered wire wound in a series of crossed layers around a soft iron core, and in 1831 he had used it to produce the ringing of a bell at a distance. It is this magnet which forms the basis of every telegraph instrument. 
is essential to it and is the foundation of the entire electrical art let it be added to this great scientist's credit that he never sought to patent any of his inventions giving them as franklin had done free to all the world the struggle which morse made to perfect and secure public recognition of his telegraph and the injustice shown eli whitney by the people of the south were as nothing when compared with the trials of that most unfortunate of all inventors charles goodyear whose story is one of the most tragic in american annals no one can read of his struggles without experiencing the deepest admiration for a man who at the time was regarded as a hopeless lunatic charles goodyear was born at new haven connecticut in eighteen hundred while he was still a child his father moved to philadelphia and engaged in the hardware business in which his son joined him as soon as he was old enough to do so but the panic of eighteen thirty six wiped the business out of existence and goodyear was forced to look around for some other means of livelihood he had been interested for some time in the wonderful success of some newly established india rubber companies and out of curiosity bought an india rubber life preserver upon examining it he found a defect in the valve and inventing an improvement in it he went to new york with the intention of selling his improvement to the manufacturer the manufacturer was impressed with the new device but told goodyear frankly that the whole india rubber business of the country was on the verge of collapse and indeed the collapse came a few months later the trouble was that the goods which the rubber companies had been turning out were not durable the use of rubber had begun about fifteen years before first in france in the manufacture of garters and suspenders and then in england where a manufacturer named mackintosh made waterproof coats by spreading a layer of rubber between two layers of cloth then in eighteen thirty three the roxbury india rubber company was organized in the united states and manufactured an india rubber cloth from which wagon covers caps coats and other articles were made its success was so great that other companies were organized and seemed on the high road to fortune when a sudden reverse came for the heat of summer melted wagon covers caps and coats to sticky masses with an odor so offensive that they had to be buried so the business collapsed the various companies went into bankruptcy and the very name of india rubber came to be detested by producers and consumers alike End of chapter 10, part 1. Recording by William Tomko.